allegedly said that you left him in a bloody pope. I don't know. I don't yeah, talk. you was high. It, it, it says that uh, y'all was on his private jet or something like that. Y'all was yeah, that was pretty soon. Listen, if this rematch is going to happen, I'm going to show you what I can do. I've got another level, I've got another gear. It looked like you could have done that for 15 rounds in there, like an old school fighter. You know, the way the 15 rounders used to... Right, listen, if you, if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. They call me the problem. But you could call me the can man, cause anybody can get Africans, Americans, Dominicans, Mexicans, anybody can get Welcome back. We're back at it again. The number one podcast in the sport where we witnessed a juggernaut steam into a truckload of sheep and leave blood absolutely everywhere. Um, you already know what time it is. You know who's back. Apologies for the delay. Ah, oh, man, I've just been so fried mentally after um, having to commentate on Saturday, which I'll probably leave out of this episode and just do one on that because... Um, it feels a bit self-indulgent. A lot of you just want to know, what does he think about Parker Joyce? So I'll, I'll leave that one for later and we'll just do a a brief up and down of, you know, what I had to catch up on over the weekend. And what a night of boxing it was. Now, I know we did complain, if you remember, that while we got these two shows that clash. And in truth, they were both kind of nothing shows because they didn't lead us anywhere. Um, Hughes versus Galahad doesn't change much in the lightweight division. Joyce Parker, for me, wasn't was never going to change much in the heavyweight division. I was 100% confident Joe would steam through Joe Parker. I was 100% confident. Never had a doubt for a second because for as long as you guys have heard me do podcasts, I've always said I think Joe Parker is massively overrated. Uh, he got by on toughness. And a strong degree of fitness, which I think a lot of that seems to have deserted him post Dillian White. So I wasn't surprised at the outcome, but it gave me a chance to look at Joe Joyce against what I consider to be a heavyweight gatekeeper. We saw it with Brian Jennings, but I think Parker's, a, Parker's an upgrade on Brian Jennings. Not by much, but he is from a size and a, a sort of size and weight perspective he is. And maybe from a pedigree perspective as well. But let's not forget Joe Parker has been... He's been on the global radar since he was an amateur. So he's, he's a contemporary of a lot of these heavyweights we're watching now, like Hergovic and, and so forth. So he's, he's no mug. Show him his respect. He's no mug. But he's not at the level Eddie Hearn would have you believe. Because if you listen to Eddie talk about Joshua's resume, they talk about Joe Parker like he was this killer. And most people accept he was lucky to get the win against Ruiz. And we saw what Ruiz did against Joshua. 
You know, and that's how they try and palm it off, right? Oh, Parker's much better than people give him credit for. He's not. He really isn't. Like, he, he got his world title shot by just sitting in the rankings. Not a bad thing to do, but he just sat in the rankings. You know, people think he got lucky against Huey Fury too. You know, you ask Mick Hennessy what he thinks about that. So, Parker's not this elite heavyweight that people try and portray him as. But we weren't sure about Joe. We knew Joe was a threat, but we didn't know if we could be putting Joe in that top five, top three. Where, where, where did Joe sit? Going into this fight, we didn't know. Where, did, where does Joe actually sit? And on Saturday, we found out. And we found out pretty comprehensively. So look at the headlines. Joe Joyce stops Joseph Parker in the 11th round with a stonking left hook, right? That's, that's all she wrote. Um, just knocked him into the corner. And, and people say that was a left hook from hell, which it actually wasn't. It, was a, the, it wasn't a throwaway hook, but it was just kind of a transactional hook. He was just trying to hit the target. The damage was done 20 seconds before. And if you watch the clip back, there's a left hook that, that Joyce throws and it's flush and you hear it connect. It might have been, oh God, I can't remember how, how deep into it was. Maybe it was about 30 seconds in, 35 seconds in, into that 11th round. And he's just gone crack with a left hook. And that's knocked all the fight out of Joe Parker. And Joe Parker starts to circle clockwise and you can see he's done. Like he, he goes to the corner and you can, in his head, he's talking to himself like, I need to do something. I need to do something. And his body's like, <laughs> we've done everything, man. We're done, mate. We're done. Yeah. We weren't expecting this. We weren't built for this. We don't deserve this. You need to find a way out, Joe. Yeah. We can't cope with this. And then when that final hook comes, you can see. Yeah. Parker's mind wants to come forward. His body just runs backwards. And that's how he ends up in the position that he does. But that's all Joe Joyce. Because people, people can say a lot of things about Joe. But at no point in that fight was he really in trouble. As we said earlier, Parker's a really tough man. He's savagely tough. Savagely tough. But Joe was able to, to weather that in a way that Chisora couldn't. And we consider Chisora to be a tough man. And the difference between the two, and I might have said this after Parker Chisora, if Derek had had the work rate of a younger Del Boy, he would have beaten Parker too. Parker's vulnerable to work rate because most heavyweights are quite slow and ponderous. He's been able to get away with it. He struggled with Ruiz. Ruiz is a high-working heavyweight, as is Huey Fury. And he probably got lucky on scorecards because of who he was at various points in his career. Joe wasn't going to let him get away with that because Joe had the work rate. But he had the size advantage and he had the chin. Because he took some flush shots and they didn't even look like they're that hard because Joe was like, oh, okay, okay. Is that your best shot? My turn. And so Joe was taking one heavy shot to receive five. I mean, he could see the mathematics wasn't working out. And he, it didn't look like Andy Lee had an answer because people genuinely think you can pick, you can pick your shots against Joe. You can peck away at him. I don't think you can. Because... Really, to beat Joe, you need a size advantage. You need a mobility advantage. Both are really, really hard because as much as people say Joe's robotic, he's this, he's that, he's not. 
What they're doing is they're responding to what commentators and people on the internet have told them to believe. Joe is surprisingly mobile for a man who was walking around the best part of 19 stone on Saturday night. That's a 19 stone man and he was mobile. How do you define mobile? He was where he needed to be when he needed to be there. As simple as that. Because if you, you guys probably watched the fight. I've had to, I've obviously had to watch it on catch up. And I was, because I wasn't available on Saturday. But one of the things that surprised me was how decisive Joe, Joe, Joe Joyce was from round seven onwards. It's like, it's like he just moved up a gear. He said, right, I've done the first half of the fight and I feel good. I want to move up a gear and see if Parker can live with me. And you can see that Parker struggled with a guy who just punches in combinations. And not just punches in combinations. Let's be clear about this. Punches in maybe the most intelligent combinations you've seen since Fury. Like, the logic behind what he was doing was good. He wasn't headhunting. He knew, actually, you know, I just touched him twice upstairs. His elbows look high. I'm going to go and hit him to the body. He was doing everything right. And Parker's not used to that because heavyweights don't normally do that. To be honest, I don't even think Fury throws those kinds of shots. The combinations that Joe Joyce is throwing right now are Andy Ruiz type combinations. You know, we, we talk about Fury being good, but Fury's 6'9". He doesn't need to be on the inside throwing body shots. He just doesn't need to. So he doesn't. He does a lot more damage off his jab and his backhand, his straight right, than he does off the combination punching. Yes, he can throw the uppercut on the inside, but there isn't much variety beyond that. Joe's punch variety on Saturday, for a man his size and his reputation for being basic, you have to take your hat off to him. He's learned so much since he turned over. You know, so many times we talk about trainers doing this, doing that, not doing this, not doing that. You've got to give Ishmael Salas credit because we know what Joe was like when he first started. The version we see now is a far more mature Joe. To have got that out of Joe over the last four or five years, especially with a guy who was already past 30. Testament to Joe's intelligence, testament to his ability to be coached, testament to his desire to be better. Every fight he shows us something different. Compare that with Anthony Joshua, who just talks a good game, but every fight he shows us less and less. Anthony Joshua went with the carbon copy. He went with the plastic version. He went with the Cuban, if you bought one from Wish. Joe Joyce went and got the pure form. Went deep into Havana. Got Ishmael Salas. He didn't get a carbon copy. He didn't get, he didn't get a hoax as apprentice. He didn't do that. He got the quality in. And it shows. And I know a lot of people don't, and uh, I think BT Sport were disrespectful for this. No one gives Steve Broughton his credit for the work that he does because he does a lot of work as well in keeping Joe ticking over and keeping Joe improving. So he needs his credit because I saw on BT Sport, they only gave credit to Ishmael Salas and Jimmy Tibbs. But Jimmy Tibbs doesn't train Joe. Jimmy Tibbs is the cut man. And that's no disrespect to Jimmy Tibbs. It's just saying Jimmy Tibbs is not down at Stallard's. Jimmy Tibbs is not down at Earlsfield with Joe. Steve is. Jimmy Tibbs isn't there at City Athletic Club in Vegas. Jimmy Tibbs isn't at the UFC Fight Institute in Vegas. Ishmael is. 
So let's start putting some respect on, some, on the coaches who are doing it well. So credit to Steve for his, his role in this and credit to Ishmael Salas for the improvements we've seen in Joe. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And this might be a bit of a Joe Joyce loving because it's forced us all to look at Joe and go, what is it about Joe? What is it about Joe? And I go back to when Joe was coming through. And I want to mix this in with some of the insight I got from my erstwhile friend, the Earlsfield Gorilla, who shall forever remain nameless. Joe, Joe's a sportsman. Joe's an athlete. You look at Joe Joyce. If I told you now, Joe Joyce could probably play number eight at a reasonable level rugby. I reckon if Joe trained for a year, he could play number eight for Nottingham in rugby. I think if Joe trained, he could play for Jewsbury in rugby league. If you gave him a year. For two reasons. One, the physical gifts that he's got. But secondly, he seems able to figure things out for himself. He'll pick up skills, but figure them out. And so when Joe joined Earlsfield, they gambled. I don't think he'd been training for more than a year and a half, two years, maybe even less. And they threw him into the ABAs and he won. Yeah, he, he just won. With pretty much a similar style, at least at the principal level, maybe, maybe not in terms of execution because the pro, pro boxing is different. But he was always able to outwork people. He was always fit. And that's what Earlsfield gave him. That obsession with fitness, that obsession with actually being fundamentally sound and making good decisions. That's what Earlsfield gave him. You've got to tip your hat off to them as a club. Because loads of other clubs tried to get big lumps and fast track them into position. That's what they're trying to do. What, once people saw what happened with Joshua, they started to flood the market with big guys. And a lot of these big guys crashed and burned. You know, we don't talk about guys like uh, so Josh Qualey. We don't talk about him. We don't talk about Alex Dickinson. There are a lot of big guys we don't talk about because they couldn't last the course. Joe did. You know, um, Armin Iso, Iso Armin, never know which way to say that. He didn't last the course. Nick Webb tried, but he couldn't last the course. A lot of these big guys don't last the course. So you've got to give Joe credit for always doing it on the back foot. You know, we'll gloss over the Olympic silver medal because people debate whether it was silver, whether it was gold. Who knows, right? You know, we can look at the two guys now and say there's a clear golfing class between them, 100%. But at that time, there were arguments for both sides. But so you've got, you've got Joe. And what, one, one thing about Joe that people don't understand is he, he subverts every rule of boxing. Let me give you a clear example. Watch the fight again. Joe stands square on pretty much. That's why he's so easy to hit. Right? It's not... It's like there's a trade-off. He stands square on, and Joe being square on allows him to do something really, really important. It allows him to move laterally, right? It allows him to move laterally quicker than most people, so he can get side to side pretty quick. So if he times his slips, then he can be, on your, he can be outside your elbows in no time, and then you're just going to get heavy leather back in a position you can't defend. What he can also do when he stands square is he can take a step back. 
So that's really how Joe defends. There's not a lot of head movement. It's, it's just his feet kind of get him to the side or they get him back. And that's not really how you're taught to do it, but he can make it work because he's got the punch resistance to do so. But you wouldn't encourage people to do that. That's something Joe figured out he can get away with. He made it work. That doesn't mean that it's a coaching blueprint for someone. Joe just, he was just one of those freaks that was able to make it work. The other thing it does, and you, you see this a lot with Joe, is it leaves his hips open. See, when you've got one leg in front of the other, your back leg is limited in terms of how far the hips can turn because the front hip's in the way, All right? So when they tell you that's how you're meant to throw a punch, yes, but if you're looking to maximize power, you probably wouldn't do it that way. So when Joe stands the way he does, which is reasonably square on, it leaves him in a position where he can really rotate into his hooks. Now, he doesn't do all of these things all of the time. He mixes it up. Like There'll be times where he'll put one foot in front of the other. If he's stalking you, for example, he'll do that. But when he's up there in front of you, face to face, he'll be square on. And what that means also is, as a retreating or moving fighter stood in front of him, you have to find the long way around him. It was like, remember those days when you see Saul Campbell shepherding the ball out for a goal kick, and you're just seeing the striker having to literally run 200 meters either way to get around him. And that, that's the sort of thing Joe does. He just presents such a big target and such a big threat that you end up having to go the long way around. And all of these things are things that you don't teach because it's like, well, there's a chance that you're going to get hurt. And then there's another thing that he, he does, and you'll see this in the Parker fight. Sometimes when he jabs, when he really wants to stamp his authority with a jab, and I hadn't noticed this before. He moves his back leg first, right? So he slides and steps instead of stepping and sliding. When most people are taught to box, you're taught. And I'm not saying this is the best way to teach, but it's a way to teach. Step forward with your left foot, shoot the jab, drag your right foot back so you're back in, in your position of balance. Joe goes the opposite way. He brings his right foot in so his feet are together almost like a spring and then he shoots that lead foot forward with the jab so you've got all of that weight and the momentum and the snap on the jab and that's what did a lot of damage to Joe Parker those jabs where he was it was like a skip call it a skipping jab where he could just just skip boom and he'd hit him and you don't see that you don't see that. You don't see the combination punching. He was, he was throwing little man combinations in there. You know, having a proper look. Go, okay, there, there are the ribs there. All these things that Joe does that he doesn't get credit for because he's not media friendly. He's not a media darling. So people discount what he does. But he, he subverts so many of these principles when it comes to, when it comes to boxing, like he'll defend almost like a capoeira defense. He'll just put his arms in the way. And if, it, if he catches it, cool. If he doesn't, he's got his chin as his last line of defense. But what that skip jab also does, it allows him to trigger his opponent without committing forward. So you might see that back leg start to move or you even see the back leg move. Actually, you will just see him move and you will think the jab's coming. But at that point, he's got an option. He can go forward or he can go out to the side. And sometimes he'll do that. And so Joe becomes really hard to read because we're all, we're all trained to read the conventional stuff. We're not trained to read what Joe does. 
and no one can really replicate that style. So his tells, his triggers, they're all off. That's why fighting Joe is such a nightmare. It's all off. He doesn't punch in rhythm. It's all off. Now, I don't know if it's deliberately off. I can't say that, but it's all off. You watch it and you go, that's a nightmare to be in the ring with this guy. Because a lot of times Parker would do the right thing at the right time. And against anyone else, he wouldn't have been hit so much. But against Joe, he's getting hit because he's like, how am I getting hit? I did the right thing at the right time. And it's all about this, this unconventional approach Joe has to boxing. He doesn't get credit for it. Like I said, he's not a media darling. But he does. And I wish more heavyweights would learn like this. Figure out what works for you. Yes, your coach can give you a template, 100%, but you've got to figure out what works for you. Joe has, and what works for him is pretty damn impressive. You know, how many people are going to get pummeled by a 19-stone combination punch? It doesn't happen. Where are you going to find one of those? Six foot six as well. So then, you know, you look at that fight in totality, and you ask yourself, so where does this put Joe Joyce? Does he beat Fury? Maybe. Does he beat Joshua? Yes. Does he beat Wilder? Maybe. Does he beat Dillian? Yes. Does he beat Dubois? Yes. Does he beat Usyk? Yes. I don't see, I don't see how Usyk has more movement than Joe. So you're going to take the shots. And not only are you going to take the shots, you're going to take the shots that Joshua should have thrown. Like you will, that will be the AJ fight that we should have got. Because Joe will hit him. And Joe will break him down. Usyk hasn't got the physical constitution to survive that kind of onslaught for 12 rounds with 10 ounce gloves on. He just hasn't. And I know people say, yeah, but look at that movement won't count for nothing against Joe. Park the World Series of Boxing to the side. Joe's a much, much better fighter than he was then. Much much better, light years in fact. You think if Joe Joyce shows up with that kind of punch volume, Usyk can take all of those shots. He was struggling in round nine against Joshua. And I'm not saying Joshua nearly had him out, but he was struggling. Joe can do that for 12 rounds. And mentally, you can't, you can't resist that without you doing some damage yourself. You think Joe Joyce is just going to let Usa keep escaping to the right like he always does. He's, this is not Anthony Joshua we're talking about. Joe will have that shut down immediately. Yeah. And if you do try going the other way, there'll be some heavy leather waiting for you. So really, we're looking at Fury from a skill and mobility perspective. We're looking at Wilder from a power perspective as the two people most likely to beat Joe. If you were to ask me, the surprise packages in terms of fighting Joe, it will be smaller heavyweights. Michael Hunter, Andy Ruiz, guys who can get busy in terms of work rate, you know, reasonably solid chins. They're the guys you're looking at. I think the Bacoli fight would be interesting. I don't know how long that would last though, but that would be an interesting fight because Bacoli's got that same thing of, you know, that kind of rolling snowball effect where the work rate goes up with every round and he can throw good combinations as well. But I think at the top level, Joe, I've got to put Joe top three right now. Just because I think he's incredibly hard to beat. But I don't think people will take him on willingly. 
I think he'll have to force his position as a mandatory to become world champion. But just to close off, one thing I do find really interesting is how Frank Warren's energies change towards Joe. Because if you go back to pre-Joyce uh, versus Dubois, you know, Frank was very high on Daniel. Daniel was the guy. Daniel will fight Joshua. Daniel will beat Joshua. He'll be a world champion in no time, right? That was Frank's energy. Now he's salivating over Joe. Like Joe was, Joe was like the neglected stepchild for a long time, but he's proved himself now. And now, you know, there's that uneasy marriage between Frank and Joe where they're like, oh, you know, we've got to deal with each other now, haven't we? You know, I think deep down they'd all rather be, well, Team Joyce would probably rather be on a better platform, but let him get his world title, I say. Let him get his WBO title shot. Let Joe ascend to the top. He deserves it. And then let's go from there. But overall, great performance from Joe. Um, give him his due. Uh, I just think, I mean, there's a lot to be excited about. But, I mean, these are his years now. The next two to three years are Joe's. And hopefully he gets the opportunities he deserves. Yeah, that, so, yeah, I'm glad I caught up on that because that, that was educational for me, if nothing else. And then the other main event, Maxi Hughes versus Kid Galahad. God, where do you start? So one, I was team Maxi Hughes for the, on this one. And I'll explain why in very simple terms. Maxi Hughes stopped Danny Connor. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> always going to be a friend. You know, you're always going to be a friend. Always going to be someone I owe a drink to. Secondly, and this goes back to when people say, I only talk about my friends on this show. True. But it was lovely to see Sam Smith in Maxi Hughes' corner. Like, I remember when they first opened the Alliance Boxing Club in Leeds in Cross Keys. I think it's Cross Keys. And then now they've moved to the new place. And to see how she's gone from that to turning pro, having the career that she had, retiring, having a family, and now you're seeing her on the pro stage helping out Sean O'Hagan. I think it's brilliant. And it's a testament to how close the Leeds boxing community is and how they all stick together. That put a smile on my face, actually. So, you know, when I saw that, I was, I was happy and I was proud of her. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I was always going to be Team Maxi Hughes for that reason. Um, I thought the fight would be hard for Kid Galahad because Galahad wasn't a big featherweight. He's not a big featherweight. Like Warrington's not a big featherweight. These aren't guys who really have to suck down. Maxi Hughes looked big. He looked big at, at lightweight. And so you could see the difference in size, the difference in strength, the difference in power. And normally what Galahad's able to do is he'll just nullify you with, with crafty defense. Now he, when people talk about the Ingle style, I think there's a spectrum of, of, of Ingleism, right? You got Naz as one extreme on this side and you almost got Johnny Nelson on the other extreme right so you got Naz who is just kill or be killed and you got Johnny who's at zero risk right and then in the middle you get various people so Ryan Rhodes is more on the Naz side of things Galahad's more on the Johnny Nelson side of things and Kel's probably bang in the middle <clears throat> in terms of interpretations of the Ingle style and so what you see with Galahad is you don't get all the, all the flash and the head movement and this, that, and the third. You just get really good fundamentals. Feet in, feet out, 
head a little bit to the side, head up, head down. And then you get that, that craft on the inside. You know, the little things that Galahad will do where he'll use the blade of his forearm on your face to move you. He'll use the, the heel of his palm on your chin to shunt you back. You know, as I heard on Sunday, like he'll grab your nose and literally try and break your nose. Or if your nose is already broken, he'll do that just to, to trigger more bleeding and cause more pain and pinching your back. You know, old timer crafty moves that no one teaches anymore. But you need those little crafty moves, especially in the pro ring. And that's how you, you maintain order and respect in the ring between two fighters. And so Kid Galahad's got all of that, but he hasn't got the pop. And at 135, at lightweight, you need a degree of pop. And so Maxi Hughes had no qualms just coming forward and bullying Kid Galahad. And Galahad didn't seem to have the mobility at 32 to move around him. Now, Galahad's what? He's been a pro 13 years. He had about 30 fights. It feels like it should have been more. But the worrying thing is, of those 30 fights, how many can you remember? Kiko Martinez, Josh Warrington. Uh, can't remember the rest. That's the issue. The same with Maxi Hughes. You know, people keep telling me Maxi's a world champion. I, the way I describe him is he's a world British champion. You know? When you look at the guys that Maxi Hughes has lost to, like, there's no hope of being a world champion. Like, you're not lacing Devin Haney's boots. You know, you... You got a belt that nobody wanted. And fair enough, man. You know, you can call yourself a world champion. I don't know how I feel about that per se. I still think there's a debate about how many world titles can we have because we're moving into a five belt era. Like only boxing could shoot itself in the foot this way and go, yeah, we're going to have five belts. It's absolutely insane as far as I'm concerned. But in terms of the fight, um, what was the key flashpoint? G Galahad losing a point for use of the head. Now... I thought that was a little unfair, but I also understand Galahad has a reputation. So I don't know if, if George Groves had done that, if he'd have been Dr. Point is what I would say. Because at no point from what I saw, does Galahad's head lose contact with Maxie Hughes's head. So the heads come together innocently and Galahad goes to roll under yeah, and he hasn't lost contact at this point. His head's still there. And he does. He goes to separate himself from Maxi Hughes. There are pros who have done that before. Yeah? Because for me, a headbutt is where you make contact with force to your opponent with your forehead. Right? That's a headbutt for me. This wasn't a headbutt. Was it illegal use of the head? I don't necessarily think so. And it definitely didn't warrant a point taking off. Because that changes the whole complexion of the fight, right? Because I think it goes, without that point, it goes from a majority decision to a split decision. I don't know if it's Galahad who wins that. I can't remember the scorecards. There was definitely well, a 114-114. So Galahad would have got that. Maxi would have got the other one. And then would the third one have been a draw? I assume so. So that would have been a split draw. And then they would have had the rematch. Who knows what would have happened then? But... I don't think there'll be a massive call for a rematch because Galahad doesn't have that, that fan base, does he? After he got knocked out by Martinez, he doesn't have that fan base. He did before because boxing fans, being who and what they are, will generally cheer on an underdog. Oh, yeah, I think Galahad beats everyone at 126. And then he fights people at 126 and he looks mortal. And then they just go, ah.
on to the next one. But it means that this Maxi Hughes train keeps going, but they're going to have to cash out on Maxi at some point. And I don't know who you, who do you put him in with is a question. Do you try and offer a deal for Shakur Stevenson? Shakur has a stay busy fight. Gets a title at 135. If we want to call the IBO a title. And then goes from there. No idea. But what I can say with absolute certainty is they're going to have to cash out on him soon because he has a level. And I think anyone with a bit of pop and a bit of movement may do serious harm to Maxi Hughes. That's what I would say. But I like him, like the story, like the fact that he's had an Indian summer to his career. And I hope he, he benefits financially from all of this. So what I'll do now is I'll just float around the undercards of both shows and just pick our stuff that maybe was of interest. So first thing, so Amanda Serrano comes over to the UK. Remember, Eddie Hearn said Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano was the fight between the two biggest women in boxing at that point. That's what he said, ignoring Savannah and Clarissa. So Amanda Serrano shows up, fights and leaves. No one bats an eyelid. Didn't trend once, no real traction on social media. No one cared about Amanda Serrano. I think deep down we, we all suspect that she uses drugs and that's why we don't care about her. That's fair enough. And, you know, she, she swims in very shallow waters. Like, why would you want to be undisputed at Featherweight? Why not be undisputed at Super Bantam where you know that there's some real killers down there? You know, but she doesn't want that kind of work. That's fair enough. But it goes to show her lies about these things on occasion. Let's not say all the time because I don't want that 100 million lawsuit. But when you're telling us that was the biggest fight in women's boxing, mainly because you gave up, a, gave out a shit ton of tickets at Madison Square Garden and it wasn't full. These are things that are just true. So she arrives, she leaves, does nothing for BT's numbers, does nothing for engagement. You didn't get the women's boxing advocates banging the drum. Wonder why? Yeah? May, perhaps they, they weren't given the incentives to do so. Let's just leave it there. So Serrano comes, she wins, who cares? Sorry, just being honest, who cares? Right? Lost, lost interest in her. In contrast, Hannah Rankin fights Terry Harper and we have an... I want to be brief when I talk about this fight because I might get myself in trouble. For Terry Harper to go from featherweight to light middle and she wasn't a big featherweight, nor was she a big lightweight. That raises all kinds of red flags. And for UCAD to not have been in that camp testing regularly, I find very strange. I, I, I would say it is 80 to 90% certain she had to use something to get to that size and maintain that condition. I can't say it's a fact. It's an opinion. I believe, in my opinion, Terry Harper was probably on some kind of performance enhancing drugs. There was a yellowing around her face, around the beard line. There was definitely a yellowing there, which, which is normally a red flag for me. The voice has changed. The physique has changed. <clears throat> the relative proportions have changed, in fact. That's the, biggest, that's the biggest worry. Now, here's why this is important. It's understood the physiological benefits that PEDs will give you, but people forget the mental effects. People forget the demons that will creep up. You know, I'm sure behind the scenes there were tears and 
there was, you know, who knows, was there body hair growth? Was there all that sort of stuff that can scare you? Was all of that present? Don't know. Speculating here. But I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if it took a lot out of Terry Harper to get that win. An innocence that she may never get back. And this was all done so her manager could have a cash cow, a bargaining chip with Eddie Hearn. Because there's nothing else that he has. Terry Harper's the only thing he has of value. And he's literally fattening the calf for the slaughter. That's hard to watch. In terms of Hannah Rankin, I like Hannah. Got a lot of time for Hannah. You think, man, she decided to go from playing the bassoon or the cello, wherever it was, to boxing. Show sure, she's tough, hard as nails, strong as an ox. But she's a lion led by lambs. I don't think she's been well-trained. From the first day she decided to take up boxing, I don't believe she's been well-educated and well-trained in the sport. I think she could have done more in that fight. I think she could have definitely performed better. She could have had different tactics. When you know you're giving up skill, speed, and probably reach, because there's not much difference between them. You're giving up skill, you're giving up speed, you're giving up experience. Why would you try and outbox someone like that? Why wouldn't you be there going, I'm the woman who really belongs at this weight and start mauling and bullying her? Although in terms of lean mass, I wouldn't be surprised if Terry Harper came in heavier in terms of lean mass. But I'd like to have seen Hannah Rankin really just bully Terry Harper. Shove her around, just get right in there, get horrible. But to do that, you need someone in your camp who knows how to do that. You need someone in your camp with a mindset to do that. With the intelligence to work out how you do that against Terry Harper. When you got, when you got one of them fish and chip trainers, you, you fish and chip box. That's what you do. And that's what happened. And she got picked off. She got hurt. And it's not, that wasn't nice to see because, like I said, Hannah Rankin's a great human being who deserves better. My view is she deserves better. What she decides to do, training-wise, is entirely up to her. I can only say what I saw. They were completely the wrong tactics. It didn't look like there'd been much progression over the last three years, which worries me because, like I said, in terms of raw materials, Hannah Rankin's exactly what you'd want. If you want to try this sort of experiment of learning to box in your late 20s, Hannah Rankin is exactly who you'd want. All I can say is had she trained with me even for a year, you'd have seen something completely different. But she got outclassed, she got picked off, and she got picked off with shots that I don't think you should be getting picked off with in the pro game. Like, you've got to see some of these punches coming. All that sparring you've done, Breakers, Shields, Marshall, Sandy Ryan, all that work you've done, you still can't see jabs coming. You still can't slip. You can't parry. You can't get yourself in position to, to block and counter. I don't blame Hannah Rankin for that. She's got a team around her who are meant to get her in position to do that, and that didn't happen. That would be my worry. So I don't know what you do now if you're Hannah Rankin. Like, you just do the circuit now, I guess. Try a different weight class, go up, go down, just move around. Because you're not going to beat Jonas for those two belts. Harper's probably going to try and get another belt. So what do you do? Move weight class? You already, you already fought Shields and Marshall, and that didn't end well. You move down? 
I can honestly see Hannah Rankin, depending on her promotional and management situation, I can see ending up fighting Sandy Ryan. That, that's where I see that one going. She'll fight Sandy Ryan. It'd be awkward. They're friends. Well, they're, at least they're cool. I know that. It'd be something like that. But that's a real shame because Hannah Rankin had real potential to, to win fights like this. And it just goes to show the end is always in the beginning. The end is always in the beginning. So I saw Mark Heffron had a good win over the weekend. You know, it's good for his spirit to, to get those sort of dominant wins. You know, cement, I mean, you cement yourself now at this kind of level. But he's got to fight Zach Chelly. That's my opinion. I, I think he's got to fight Zach Chelly. You know, I, I've been saying for a while, Zach might be the closest thing we've got to a Carl Froch in terms of mindset, physical capabilities, all of that. And like just that, that desire to just take heads off. I think Zach Chelly might be the closest thing we have to a Froch. Not saying he is Carl Froch, just saying he's got those elements in him. I'd like to see that as a fight. I don't know. I think that's, a, that's a, just a good entertaining fight. Let's, let's have a fight like that. Um, and if Heffron wins that, then you can start talking about guys like John Ryder. Let's start giving him those paydays that he deserves and those entertaining fights. Uh, does he have to be on Sky? Not necessarily, but it'd be good to have Heffron on Sky, just like it would be good to have Echo Esterman on Sky. He could fight Chris Congo on Sky because he won against Sam Antwi, and that's not an easy fight. Sam Antwi gets a hard time because he's not really a ticket seller, but the kid can fight, and the kid is tough. From the days at the TA Boxing Centre in Grove Park in London, you could see that he had something. It's just that none of these guys could sell tickets. I'll rephrase that. None of them tried to sell tickets, I should say. Just never tried to sell tickets. So he's had to sort of go the, the back road all the way to a British title fight. But credit to Echo Esteban, I think he wins the belt outright now. I'd like to see him fight. If he can't get Chris Congo, can we at least get Tulani, uh, Tulani Mbenge over, former IBO champ, I think he was. You know, let Echo Esteban fight at world level for a bit. I think he's, he's got the toughness and he's got the, the, the foundations for it. So I wouldn't be surprised if he does well at that level. And especially as you start to see your Spencers, your Crawfords, etc., your Danny Garcia start to ride into the sunset. This could be a good time to be a welterweight. So I thought that was a, a good fight. Don't think there was anything else of interest from my perspective. No. Pretty transactional cards on Saturday. Um, and as I said, I was mostly in Leicester. So we'll talk about that one later. But what I want to zero in on now it's this whole Fury versus Joshua saga. Because this is an absolute mess. But let's just zero in on what, what, what I think is the material period of time, right? Let's go back to, I don't know if it was the summer last year or the summer before. No idea, I've lost track of time. And we were hearing talks that, we were hearing rumors that there were talks for Joshua to fight Fury. And we, at the time we said, but what about Wilder? Oh, we can handle Wilder. We'll give him some step-aside money. Whatever they were talking about, right? And so we, we end up in this position. And then we get the, the picture in Marbella, of all places, Marbella. And Joshua's there. Fury's there, right? Fury's in the Range Rover. Joshua's clearly waiting by the roadside. That's what it looks like. Yes, it looks staged as hell. And we'll come on to that in a second. And so we've got all of this, right? Then we've got the... 
I can announce the biggest fight in heavyweight boxing history has been agreed. Get in there, my boy. Thanks to Daniel Kinahan. All, all, we, we had all of this happening. So our assumption at the time was at least there's a contract so they don't have to go back and forth agreeing terms again. There's a contract here. Fair enough. Then they go their different paths, right? Fury has to fight Wilder. Joshua fights Pulev. So that was, go, when was that? Was that 2020? 2021, nothing. And then out of nowhere, after Joshua loses to Usyk, Fury starts coming out like, yeah, I'll fight him in December. And most fans are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of us are just like, uh, I can see how this can happen. And I think it should happen. But it doesn't feel right. And there were two reasons it didn't feel right. You'd need a build-up and you'd need an international tour for this. And there didn't seem to be time for that and time to train. The second thing was, if you already had an agreement before, most of those terms should have been agreed. Right? Both parties are with the same promoters. Both are pretty much with the same broadcaster. Take Sky out the equation, but pretty much the same broadcaster. What's so hard about that? That should have been a deal that was just done in days. Eddie's saying he's not happy with the format of the contract, but they had an agreement before. Where's that format? Why didn't they just go back to that format? Because everyone was a part of that deal. Okay, it may not be in Saudi, but you're changing place names, right? Really, you're just changing place names. And then I'm hearing about, well, Joshua can't sign the contract because he's got commercial obligations and he might get sued. And no one was very specific about what those issues were. And I understand uh, commercial sensitivity, but there are no conflicting brands here. Fury's not sponsored by Nike. So Under Armour won't have an issue. Fury's got a Rolls-Royce Cullinan. Range Rover won't have an issue. Fury uses Shaw for men, so Lynx won't have an issue. So I'll come back to this point. Where, where are the sticking points? The reality is there were no sticking points. That's a contract that's relatively easy to make. It's not that complicated. I promise to God it's not that complicated. They just need to agree. Splits on the revenue. They need to agree on what you're going to do to get that revenue. They just agree on where the fight's happening, when it's happening, Who's broadcasting here? Who's broadcasting internationally? Done. You can do that in a day. I refuse to believe lawyers draft contracts in weird formats. They don't. They just pull the thing off. They go, what's your previous fight agreement? Okay, we're going to add some clauses in. So when I heard Eddie talking about, yes, yeah, in the wrong format, I was like, they're stalling for time here. Everyone's just, everyone's playing a game here. Right? Everyone's playing a game here. And it took me back to where we were when the Mayweather-Pacquiao thing was bubbling. And after every Manny fight, it would be like, yeah, we're going to talk to Floyd tomorrow. And after every Mayweather fight, yeah, we'll ring Manny. You know, we'll get the fight done. And everyone gets excited, then nothing happens. You fight Miguel Cotto or whoever. Why? Because us as boxing fans, we fall for it every time. We fall for this. We buy into it. We're so desperate to believe we will just buy into anything. 
We should all en masse be reporting Fury's tweets for scams, spam, whatever you want to call it. Him, Hearn, the lot of them. All these tweets should be reported. Every time they tweet, it should be reported for spam and it's a scam. And none of them should be allowed on social media until they sign that contract. Go back four years. Fury signed his contract. Wilder signed his contract. We had a fight. There didn't seem to be any drama, any problem with that. That, that seemed to happen so smoothly. And they weren't on the same platform. So what's stopping, what's stopping that now? I'll give my theory on this. This is about preserving the economic value of two assets that somebody owns. Let's not say who, let's not say how, let's not say why. There are two assets that somebody owns. Because you've got to ask yourself, how is it that certain people can travel seemingly without bodyguards, without security, wherever they want to go? No security. You've got these high-priced vehicles and you're moving around with no security. Last time you moved around with no security, you had your watch stolen. Maybe you learned the lesson and realized there's a certain, certain fraternity you might want to join. And the head of that fraternity might be the one pulling the strings here. And just saying, we're not ready for the fight yet, but we're going to build up the interest by going back and forth now. I just think there's money to be paid back. And that's where we're at. And I think the fans are just being drawn into this. Because the more we engage with it, the more we legitimize this. Because if we did nothing, and these guys were talking about a deal has been signed and there was just nothing, crickets, tumbleweed. It would expose what's really going on here. But what they do is they just have people warring. Team Fury, Team Joshua just going head to head. And then Team Wilder join into this. And in the meantime, no one asks the obvious question. How have we been in a position where both men were told to be in Marbella? Two men who apparently don't like each other. Two men who apparently don't like each other were in Marbella at the same time and they seemed to know where the location was. Here's where I can find Fury. Here's where I can find Joshua. How does that happen unless someone says, be here at this time? How does that happen? We don't talk about stuff like this. We don't talk about that tweet that said, get fit, you fat fuck. And we've never seen that again from AJ's account. Almost like someone said, send this out. I remember there was an interview on Sky and they asked, they, asked, they asked Joshua what happened in that conversation. And it was like he had to recall what the script was because he didn't speak naturally like he normally does. He had to recall what the script was. And then I just, at that point, I was like, there's someone controlling this. I'm like, I can't speculate on who or why, but there's one person who can tell both these guys what to do and they will do it. That's the harsh reality of it. Isn't it interesting that we're nine months from one promotional organization collapsing? Not one media outlet has asked Anthony Joshua why his company was called MTK Property. Not one outlet, no, no Declan Garrity, no 
uh, Gareth A. Davis, no Duncan McRae, no Steve Bunce, nobody, no Mike, nobody has said, Anthony Joshua, why was your company called MTK Investments? I, if only just to hear the crazy justification he gives. But no one has done that. If you don't believe the, these two men are puppets, there's not much more I can do for you. There's, there isn't. But yeah, it's been a mess. It's been a disaster. If we get Fury versus Manuel Chow, whatever, who cares? Like, I think Daniel Dubois would knock Manuel Chow into next week. I think it's an embarrassing fight. And then who does Joshua fight next? No idea. Maybe they'll give him Michael Hunter. Maybe that's why the Hunter fight's not happening. Maybe they'll just give him Michael Hunter. But yeah, absolutely disgraceful. At a time where Joe Joyce is giving some credibility to the heavyweights, look at these two clowns at the top dicking around, playing with the affections, loving the equity of the fans. And you guys, you guys tolerate it. So I've got no sympathy. If you want to keep tolerating it, cool. But for me, no interest. And I think that's a good note to, to sign off on. I will, I will do a, a brief episode about the experience commentating because, yeah, I think that sits outside of this one. This is, this is what people needed. You guys probably needed this on Monday, but if I'd given it to you on Monday, we wouldn't have known that Joshua didn't sign on the deadline. So at that point, I want to tap out and say thanks, guys, and take care. <laughs>